This afternoon we move into chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel and we find in this portion a number of notable miracles that the Lord Jesus performs after preaching in the previous chapter. The first one in, in verse 1 connects back to the previous chapter and we're told a centurion sends to the Lord Jesus Christ when he's in the city of Capernaum because he has a sick servant that he desires to be healed. And then when you come to verse 11, the next day after this healing in a surrounding area, Jesus raises the dead son of a widow in the city of Nain. The preaching of the Lord Jesus, as it usually is, is confirmed by the performance of miracles. Again, we find ourselves in Galilee and in particular the city of Capernaum, which could be called in some respects the city of miracles. And in the words before us this afternoon, we ought to be in no doubt that the Lord Jesus is speaking to each and every one of us, whether we are converted to faith in Christ or whether or not we need to be converted to faith in Christ. The purpose of this word is that you might fix your faith and set your hope upon Jesus. And so with God's help, we want to consider the first of these miracles, which is also recorded in Matthew's Gospel and chapter 8. And in it, as I said, Jesus heals the servant of a Roman centurion. But the way it's presented, the healing is somewhat an afterthought in some respects, because the focus is not so much upon the servant, though we will consider him. The emphasis is firmly placed upon the faith of the centurion. And the Lord Jesus speaks of him in this chapter, the way he will later speak of the Syrophoenician woman. If you look there at verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. That's what he said of the Syrophoenician woman in a few months or a year, or I can't remember how long ago, we preached the sermon on her, Mrs. Great Faith. And here we have in the verses before us today, her male counterpart. And so we're going to consider him as Mr. Great Faith, this centurion whose servant was healed. First of all, we want to look at the miracle and the centurion. The miracle and the centurion. And we'll work down through the verses to see what the Lord is describing for us here. And the first thing about him is his concern. And it's twofold. First of all, he has a concern for his slave. He has a slave. He has a servant. He goes on to refer to his servant later at the end of verse 8. And I say to my servant, do this, and he doeth it, which confirms what we were considering this morning in Ephesians 6, the duty of servants to their masters. But here's a centurion, a man of influence and power. He has a servant or a slave, and he cares for this servant. He's not cruel or abusive or unloving or unconcerned about this man. And we see that surely in that when this servant gets sick, 
His concern is for his recovery. And so he sends to the elders of the Jews, whom he knows, and he sends them in turn to Jesus that they might plead for the life of the servant. So he has a concern for his servant. But there's a second area of his concern here. Because as these men come to Jesus, they tell him that the centurion has a concern for the Jews and for their God. Now, this was very rare among Gentiles. But this centurion, he has a concern for the Jews and their God. Look at verse 5. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Now, what this means is that this centurion, not only by his influence, but very likely at his own expense and by the use of the men who were under his charge, have built a synagogue in the town of Capernaum. Maybe the old one was old and needed to be replaced. Maybe it was too small and it needed to be expanded. We don't know, but we do know this that this centurion concerned for the Jews, their religion, and their God, he took on the task of building the synagogue. Biblically, we would call him a good magistrate, because this is, of course, what civil rulers are to do. They are to have a desire for God, his true religion, and his worship, and use their influence in whatsoever way they can to see that the worship of God is promoted in their realm. The centurion has it. Now, we might think it's just natural or political, and he's concerned for peace in the area. And so he builds a synagogue as an olive branch to the people. But there does seem to be more than that at play in these verses. We have Ephesians 6 being illustrated to us, the fruit of the Spirit in some respects, because verse 9 of that chapter, masters are required to deal with their servants in a particular way to vindicate the gospel. And here's a man seemingly manifesting this gospel fruit towards his servant. He's charitable. He's compassionate. And then coupled with that, he seems to have a desire for the glory of God. Even though he wasn't steeped in Old Testament religion the way the Jews were, he has got an interest in Israel's God. Furthermore, he's humble. And at the end of the chapter, we see him as a preeminent example of faith. So J.C. Ryle has much warrant when he says this, that this centurion was what he was by the grace of God. His concern for his servant and for the Jews, seems to illustrate it for us. The second thing to note about him is his humility. His humility. It's interesting the way he comes to Christ. In fact, he doesn't come to Christ at all. Not directly, not by himself. But in the early verses, we discover that he sends others. The Jewish elders know him, and so he says, can you go and can you bring this request to Jesus on my behalf? And when they go to Christ, verse 4, they plead something about this man. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him. That means they, they, they begged him. They were earnest in their desire. They besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. And then they say he's worthy because he built us a synagogue. 
he is worthy for whom he should do this. So other men are praising this man, but what the man does not do is praise himself. In fact, he's not saying, do this because I'm worthy. Everything that he says to the Lord Jesus Christ is the opposite. He says, I am completely unworthy. Look at verse 6 and 7. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter unto my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. There's almost a tension here. He sends the Jews initially And the Jews ask, will you go to the centurion's house? And Jesus begins to go to the centurion's house. And the centurion hears about it. And now he sends friends. And he says, no, don't come to my house. What's going on here? Well, he clearly has a desire that his servant would be healed. But he's also very aware that he's a Gentile. And in the common custom of this day, it was unlawful for a Jew to enter into the house of an uncircumcised person. And so maybe the centurion understands that, and he says, no, don't come to my house. But whatever the reason behind it, the fruit of this within his soul was a sense of humility. It is too low a thing for Christ to stoop to come to my house. It is too high a favor for me that Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, should come to my house. This is remarkable humility. After all, this man is a centurion. He is a servant. He says, do this. The servant does it. He has men under him that control this region. And he says, go and they go. Return and they return. And a man like that could quickly think that he can simply call Jesus of Nazareth and say, I'm the local centurion and I demand that you come here immediately. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't even come himself because he feels unworthy. He tries to stop Jesus coming en route because he feels unworthy. It is the humble petition of one who is convinced that he is an unworthy sinner before the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ in no way owes him this kindness. He's not going to pull rank as the local governmental official. He is merely pleading as a total debtor to the grace of Jesus. And then we see his faith. He says, don't come to my house. There are actually two arguments why. The first is, I'm not worthy that you should come. What's the second? You don't actually need to come. You don't need to come. Look at verse 7. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. You don't need to come to my house. 
You just need to speak. And this sickness will be gone. And then he bolsters his argument by the relationship that he stands in to other people. Verse 8, For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say to the one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. Now he's not boasting here. He's not commanding Jesus, don't come. Don't you realize I'm the centurion and if I tell you not to come, you ought not to come because that's the kind of authority I have. He's not boasting. He's illustrating why he doesn't believe that Jesus needs to come. He says, I'm a centurion. I'm under authority. The Senate are over me. When they tell me to do something, they have authority and I have to obey. Furthermore, I'm in authority. And when I speak to the men under me, they do what I say. What's his conception of Christ? His conception of Christ is the one who has absolute authority, all power, all authority. So if I tell men to go and they go, all you need to do is speak to this sickness and it's gone. I'm not worthy that you should come to my house. Furthermore, it is not necessary that you come to my house because you are the one that I perceive has authority over everything. I've heard of your miracles. I know you've healed the lame. I know you've given sight to the blind. If it was two days later, he'd be able to say, I know you raised the dead. And Jesus, en route to this man's house, stops and he marvels, verse 9. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. This man he hadn't even met yet. He marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. There are only two times in the Gospels where we're told Jesus marvels at people. If you turn to Mark chapter 6, verse 6, you'll find the other one. Mark chapter 6 and verse 6. The Lord Jesus is in Nazareth, and he's healed many people. And at the end of it, he marvels, not because of their faith, but quite the contrary. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He was astounded that they'd seen so much and yet they did not believe. Now his amazement is in the opposite direction. Here's a man he hasn't met, he hasn't spoke to. A man to Jesus' mind must have a very vague understanding of who he is and having not seen any of this, he renders this remarkable example of faith. Great faith in a Gentile centurion. But what was it? Well, don't you see as you read through these verses, it was simple faith from a humble heart that calls Christ Lord in verse 6. That's how he addresses him. And sees in Christ all of the authority and power of God. And my friends, that is 
the simple yet great faith that received its petition from the Lord. We're simply told at the end that they went back to the house and they found the servant whole that had been sick. So we see the miracle and the centurion. The second thing to note here is the miracle and the Jews. The miracle and the Jews, because this is done in the midst of a crowd. There are many people following the Lord. And yet we know that many of the people who followed the Lord at this time did not all believe. Now I invite you to turn to Matthew's account of this, where he applies or he records Christ's application more fully. Matthew chapter 8, and we're concerned there with verse 11 and 12. Well, let's, let's take in verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed him, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now here's the extra information. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the self same hour. Do you see the further application? Jesus teaches the Jews a lesson from the great faith of the Gentile centurion. What can we learn here? Well, first of all, they counted Christ unworthy. This centurion, he was concerned only to emphasize his unworthiness before Christ. Everything about this man was humility. But what of the Jews? The Jews in their pride, when they encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, counted themselves worthy so much so that they despised Christ and counted him unworthy. They were not willing or ready to receive the message of grace that leveled everything and told us that we were sinners and that our only hope was in the righteousness and the, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Jews have a very high view of themselves, but a very low view of Christ, with the result that Jesus says the children of the kingdom are refusing their king. Or to take another illustration, Matthew chapter 21, the builders have rejected Christ as the cornerstone. There they are pictured on the great site of building the temple of God. And here's a proposed stone to be the most important stone in the building. And they look at it in all of their religious knowledge and will, wisdom. They say, no, this stone is it's not worthy of it. This stone will never do the work that has to be done. And so they take the stone and they chuck it onto the rubble heap on that building site. Not understanding that in doing so, they are rejecting the Messiah that God had promised them. And we thank God 
that God has made Christ the headstone of the corner. But the Jews evaluated him as unworthy and not fit for purpose. And not only did they count him unworthy and themselves worthy, they would not come to him. They would not come to him. Now we see the centurion humbly, don't we? And he doesn't want to come to Christ. But it's because of a godly motivation. He'll go by proxy. He'll send the Jewish elders. And then he'll send his friends. And it does seem by the end of Matthew's account that he has come himself. But it's an altogether different spirit to what we find in the Jews. Now we read of them when he came unto his own. His own received him not. When they heard his word and when they witnessed his miracles, even those who dwelt in Capernaum, the city of miracles, they refused him. And so he upbraids them. O Karazin, O Bethsaida, O, o Capernaum, who are exalted up to heaven. Thou shalt be brought down to hell. Why? Because all of these things were done in your midst. And you wouldn't come to me. And yet there's that centurion in your city. And he had so little light and so little knowledge. And he's the one who humbly comes. How often would I have gathered you, he laments over Jerusalem, as a hen doth gather her chicken under her wings, and ye would not. Therefore, your house is left unto you desolate. You were born the children of the kingdom, with all of your privileges, with circumcision, with the law, with the oracles of God. And yet the children of the kingdom will be cast out. And those from the east and the west and the north and the south, they are going to come in, the Gentiles. And they will take their place with your father Abraham at the table in the heavenly kingdom while you are perishing in hell. I cried unto you, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. But you chose the iron yoke of the law. And I stood in your midst as the great physician. And yet, though you were perishing, you did not even begin to realize you were sick. The children of the kingdom, says Jesus, will be cast out. And this centurion will stand as a monument against you for your condemnation. But a third thing. Not only did they count Christ unworthy, not only would they not come to him, the Bible tells us yet many will come. Many will come. Jesus says the children of the kingdom shall be cast out. We take that further into the New Testament and Paul agrees. He says Israel, they're given over to blindness. Israel were the olive tree. And they've been cut off and they've been cast out. But that blindness is not total. It's only in part. So the nucleus of all of these New Testament churches originally was a Jewish nucleus. 
and the Gentiles come in. And not only is this blindness not total and their casting off not total, it's not final after, it's not final either, because Paul goes on to say that Israel will be cast off until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And if their casting off was the riches of the Gentiles so that we might receive so much gospel blessing in the interim, what will their fullness be? But life from the dead. God has cut off the natural branches he's grafted in, the wild Gentile branches, and he's going to get the cast off natural branches, and he's going to graft them in again to their old own olive tree. And there will be a fullness of the children of the kingdom who were cast out, brought in again by the mighty power of the gospel of Christ. Until that day, Paul says, the ingathering of the Gentiles will be to provoke Israel to jealousy. But the day that we're reading off here, we have a man who's doing exactly the same thing, and Christ uses him to do the same thing. He gathers everyone around him, and he says, you see this guy? There's faith in Israel? Okay. But I haven't seen faith in Israel like this. What's he doing? He's provoking the Jews in his midst to jealousy right there and then. And God will use the Gentile in gathering of the church to do the same so that there will be a day when we will see great faith, spectacular faith in Israel. Faith that we might be tempted to say, I have not seen such great faith. No, not in all the Gentile churches. Because God is going to do a new thing and a nation will be born in a day. And those people who have been under their own self-imposed, acquiesced in curse, are going to come and mourn for their Redeemer. And he will save them. And the means that he will use to save them is not just the provocation of the Gentiles, but the prayers and the labor and the witness of the Gentile church who have this people upon their hearts. The children of the kingdom will be cast out and they will be gathered in again. But many from the east and the west, and the north and the south, who come under the gospel, the privileges of the gospel are warned, don't do what they did. Because if God cast off the natural branches, don't foolishly think that he won't do the same to you. You are like the children of the kingdom today. With all of your privileges. And if you don't use them, the Lord's going to cast you out. So we have the miracle and the Jew. But then thirdly, we have the miracle and you. The miracle and you. 
you are here today and you're, you're one of two things. You're either unconverted or you're converted. And the miracle speaks to you in either of those conditions. So with God's help, I want to speak to those of you who are not converted. What does this miracle preach to you? How do you see yourself, your circumstances in these verses? Well, first of all, you're like the servant, aren't you? You're a slave as he was a slave. But you don't have a master as kind and compassionate as he had. You serve sin and the devil, and those masters will never send to the Lord Jesus Christ to beseech him to save you from your predicament. You're a slave under the bondage of the devil, and you stare like this man at the joy, jaws of eternal death. And people love you like this, this centurion loved his servant. And people pray for you as he did. But just like that centurion, my friend, they can do nothing at all to save you. All that they can do, and it's a big all, but all that they can do nonetheless is go to Jesus for you and beseech Christ. This boy, this girl, this son, this daughter, they're sick. They're sick nigh unto death. So you can see yourself in the servant. But then as I inferred earlier, you can also see yourself in the Jew. Because if you sat in this church without a sense of your spiritual sickness and without a keen awareness of your absolute need of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are as dead as dead can be. Because the gospel, I can say before God, and the people in this congregation will agree, the gospel has not been hid from you. It hasn't. You exist. With light set before your eyes frequently. And yet, you seem to be oblivious of the fact that you are perishing with the Savior in your midst. It doesn't concern you like a leper running about thinking, I've got no leprosy. You're deluded. It's spiritual madness. You're born a child of the kingdom and you are ready to be cast out into outer darkness and your parents and your friends, they love you, but they cannot save you. What you need to get today, what you must have, is you see this desire that the centurion had for his servant so that he would send to Jesus and beseech Jesus for the life of his slave. You need that desire for yourself. You need to be gripped with it. 
so that today, even right now, sitting in this chair, you will begin to beg for your life. You need to come as the centurion. You need to say, I'm not worthy, Lord, that you should enter into my house. You need to come in humility. You need to recognize that he is Lord, that all power belongeth unto him, and he is able to save whom he will, and whom he will, he is able to harden. And you need to cast yourself entirely upon the grace of God and cry to him. Even to the point that this centurion says, you don't have to come to my house. Just speak the word and he'll live. Beg God like that today. If none of this is impacting you, just sit down before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm convinced I'm utterly deaf. But all it takes is for you to speak. All it takes is for you to speak. And that will change. Speak to me, Lord. Speak to me words of salvation. And save me from my sin and my impending damnation. Because as a child of the kingdom, I have not yet come to the king. And then there are those of you who are converted. And you in many ways are like the centurion. You're like the slave also at the end of the passage in that you have been healed. You've been healed. But you're like the centurion who is now manifesting the fruit of the Spirit as we see it in these verses. You have concern for others. Just like the centurion, he's burdened in heart, in love, because his, his, his servant is perishing. When God opens the eyes of the blind, they begin to look at those who are near and dear to them in a different way. They become dear to you, indeed burdens upon your soul, because you see them perishing, don't you? You're like the centurion as he looks helplessly on at this servant in his house and he's thinking, what am I going to do? No one's been able to help. And yet he realizes that there's one answer. I need to go and beseech Christ. Do you have that concern? Do you have it for your children? The danger is that you see your children every day and you've just come to be comfortable with how they are. Maybe you know they're lost. It doesn't grip you. But if you had them before you in your mind's eye, as this man was physically, maybe he's paralyzed, we're told in, in Matthew's gospel, but whatever it is, it's brought him to a hair's breadth of death. You pray for your children, wouldn't you? If they get in any way seriously, physically sick, you, you, you nearly have a panic attack, don't you? 
you you go in the meltdown. Oh, my child, my child, oh, what am I going to do? I've got to take my child to the hospital. And that's right. But what about their spiritual condition? So we have eyes to see it. This man is burdened and he's concerned. He illustrates the spiritual burden that we have to have for those that we know around us who are perishing. Lord, save them. They're fatally sick. They're set to perish. Second thing is humility before Christ. Concern for others. Humility before Christ. You know, don't you, that no Christian who is truly walking in the Spirit thinks that he is worthy to be blessed by God. So the centurion doesn't come like the Jewish elders come. Lord, we want you to heal this man's servant because he is worthy. He doesn't say that. Heal my servant because I'm worthy of it. He doesn't come and say, heal my servant because I'm a centurion. I demand it. What is he? Throughout these verses, he is but a beggar who is pleading for another beggar. Doing so in a gracious humility before God, convinced of his unworthiness before Christ. And the reason for that is that grace appears to have changed everything about this man. He now has high thoughts of Christ and he has low thoughts of himself. That's where we need to find ourselves as believers. Like in verse 6, when Jesus went with them and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. With a gracious concern. We have evident gospel humility. But the third way we need to see ourselves in this centurion, the pinnacle of it all, is that we need his faith in Christ, don't we? We need his faith in Christ. Whatever he knew, he knew this. Christ has all power and absolute authority. Is that not like an invitation to us to take this to our prayers? And when we're faced with all of these needs that we've been describing, we get the same picture of Christ in our minds that this man had. You know, take it to Ephesians chapter 3 that he is able to do exceeding abundant above and beyond what we ask or think. This centurion is a man who appeared to believe that. We are in this sense to imitate this Mr. Great Faith and come to Christ with the confidence that all you need to do is speak and it'll be done. All you need to do is speak, and it will be done. Now, in Luke 7, we're not even told of Jesus speaking anything. 
seems to pass over that bit, just focuses upon the faith of this man. And yet he goes home and his servant is healed. But in Matthew's account, verse 13, we're told that Jesus did speak. And Jesus said unto the centurion, go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Brethren, we see in a, a, a saviour here who is all power to answer our prayers. And you can take that to your Christian life in general. You can think of all the needs that you have. And you look to Christ, all power, all authority. He's able to answer the things that I ask. But I want to bring it down into the life of the church. And particularly what we desire under the preaching of the word. We've been talking about it throughout this sermon. What do we desire? We desire that people would be converted to Christ. That's a miracle, isn't it? We desire the impossible with regard to ourselves. But if we get this vision of Christ, what are we really talking about? We were thinking that when a weak man stands to herald the word of God in the congregation, that all Christ has to do is take one word and bless it effectually by the power of his spirit and a sinner will be converted. May the Lord burn that into our hearts. May we believe that. May we, may we be conscious that Jesus doesn't have to come and literally walk in the midst of this building. The way he didn't have to go to the centurion's house. You don't need to see him with your eyes. You don't have to, to witness him perform the miracle. It's enough that in faith we go to him and say, Lord, just speak the word and it will be done. All of that person's resistance will be dealt with. All of their ignorance will be cleared away. Light will shine into their soul. All you have to do is speak. It's a good petition, isn't it? The close of a sermon. Every one of our hearts would join together in it. Lord, just speak the word and it will be done. Give us the faith to lay hold of this and to see the fruit of it in our own lives and in the lives of others. Let's stand for prayer. Oh Lord, just say in a word. And my servant shall be healed. Give us this great faith that is so utterly simple. Just speak the word. You know who needs to hear a word, a word of life. We as a congregation simply with one heart echo this one cry. 
just speak the word and it will be done. We believe it, O God. There is no one here who is too hard for you, no one who is too resistant. Lord, it is nothing to you to bring them to their knees, to do to them what, what they even don't want to be done because they're happy in their sin. Lord, turn all of their desires upside down. Put them in the dust and save them. They're sick nigh unto death and yet they can't feel their sickness. None of our reasoning is able to convince them. Just speak the word. They have ears, but they can't hear. And the devil will stop their ears, make them deaf. But just speak the word. We pray that you would do this and glorify yourself in a clear answer to our prayers. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.